You know, one of the things that, you know, we can look at when we look at in, in history is, you know, oftentimes people think like there's only two sides, like there's two powers. And, you know, we've seen this in history where there can be two, two powers that, that are kind of watching each other, you know, th- you know, thinking about when they're going to go off on each other. And while they're not watching, a third power rises. Or sometimes it's not a, it's not a third power outside, it's, it's something within uh, one of you know one of the countries. Next week we're going to go back to our our Ezra Nehemiah series that we we were doing before we got into the Easter season, and you know that that's what happened in in that time. You had these empires that were squaring off with one another, and it was a it was a third empire that kind of rose up and took power. I don't know if any of you guys play racquetball, but I, I used to play racquetball a lot, and you know one of the ways you can play racquetball is what we used to call cutthroat. And cutthroat sounds, well, it sounds cutthroat. And it's when there would be three people and you're all playing like you, on your own. You, it's like three of you playing against each other. So it's not like two against one, it's each one is against the other. And so sometimes, you know, you, we'd be playing and if you played enough, you would recognize who the biggest threat was to you winning. And so you would sometimes think that the game was really between you and this other person and the third guy, yeah, it didn't really matter. He was just kind of there and, you know, we humored him. But every once in a while, the two of us may be thinking we're the ones that or really, you know, the real game is the third would come up and out of nowhere would win. I think that's the way a lot of things are. I, th- I think a lot of times we, we think we know what, who our opponents are. We think we know who our enemies are. And if we look in the world today, whether you think of ourselves as a nation or even within our nation, there is more and more people that are, that are trying to identify their enemies. And I'm not going to tell you that, that your worldly enemies are not dangerous. They are. But are they the real enemy? Are they the true enemy? What the resurrection tells us, what the crucifixion tells us, is it tells us who the true enemies are. Because that's who Jesus conquers. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross and he resurrects from the dead, he doesn't conquer the Romans. He doesn't conquer the Jewish people. He doesn't conquer the Greeks, the Gentiles. The Bible tells us he conquers sin and death. Sin and death. The true enemies. Sin and death. Anyone else you can think of as an enemy, they're all subject to sin and death. Anyone else that you can conceive of, whether it's an individual, whether it's a group of people, whether it's another nation that you can conceive of as an enemy, they are subject to, they are victims of sin and death. And the cross and the resurrection is the declaration from God that he has defeated sin and death. He's defeated the true enemy of us all. 
We're going to look at a passage of scripture today that comes from this letter written 2,000 years ago. And it's written from um, Paul. He was considered, and he is considered, probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. Did more to spread Christianity than, than any of us. If it hadn't been for God using Paul, you know, so much of, of what we know, we, we wouldn't really know today. And 1 Corinthians is, is angry Paul. Sometimes you get happy Paul. Sometimes you get sad Paul. Sometimes you get reflective Paul. 1 Corinthians is angry Paul. He's really upset at the church at Corinth. And maybe, you know, you think like, well, Christians aren't supposed to get upset. Well, first of all, even if we're not supposed to, we still do. But sometimes it's right. And, and when he's writing to this church, this is a church he had spent the, the second most amount of time with. The church he spent the most time with was, was the church at Ephesus. He spent three years there. At Corinth, he was there for about a year and a half. So he knew these people. He had invested in these people. These weren't people that he just dropped in for a couple weeks and then started the church and bailed. He'd been there. He knew these people. And he starts hearing reports that these people are, are dividing. They're breaking up into groups. They're causing disunity. And what made it even sadder is they were, they were causing disunity over the very things they were given that would make them united and stronger. And he, he tries to address each one of these things throughout the letter. And near the end of the letter, and near the end of the letter, he addresses this, this problem that some of them had where they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, they wanted to try to, some of them wanted to try to have it both ways. Oh, we'll believe Jesus resurrected, but we don't believe that he's going to resurrect us someday. Others were full on no, we're not going to believe in the resurrection at all. But Paul said, you know, you really can't have it both ways. Because they weren't just arguing about, you know, they weren't just disagreeing with the resurrection. They were kind of just giving in to their culture and what their culture taught. And what their culture, you know, for, for the most part taught was that when you died, you died. Some people think like, oh, that's a, that's a new you know, that's a new thought. It's not a new thought. It's been around as long as there's been human beings with thoughts. Some of them, sometimes the majority of them have thought, when you die, you die. That's it. Now, they may, some of them may have had other beliefs. They may have thought, like, maybe you come back in some form. But Christianity was different. Christianity wasn't you just come back in memory it wasn't just you, you come back in, in some kind of spirit form in some other weird kind of ethereal world. Christianity was saying, no, you are resurrected fully, bodily. Some of them couldn't deal with it. And you might go, amen, I can't deal with that either. Well, Paul Paul's going to make this case, and he's going to say, what you really are saying is that resurrection is impossible. And if resurrection is impossible, then Jesus Christ was not resurrected. And if Jesus Christ wasn't resurrected, 
then all of this that we've been doing, all of this that we've been living for, all of this we've been sacrificing for, all of this that we've been, we, you know, some of us have, have left other faiths. Some of us have, have lost everything. We lost our businesses. We lost our families. We got cut off from our culture and our society. And, and he said, if there's no resurrection, then this was all for nothing. He doesn't really give us any wiggle room there. He's not like, ah, you know, it, it, it's okay. you know, we still got some good out of it. He goes, no, it's for nothing. And if Paul kind of ended the letter there, it would be rather depressing. But in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says very strongly this. He says, but in fact, we were studying this on Wednesday night. We always go over our sermons on Wednesday night and do a deeper study. And really, he's saying, without a doubt, without a doubt, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, if you're like me, when I used to read the Bible, uh, before I started really studying the Bible, if I started seeing the same word repeated over and again, I would get kind of confused, um, especially like the word like subjection. But we're going to come back and talk about that in a second. But I want you to go and think about what Paul is saying. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Why can Paul say that? Well, for Paul... He can say it without a doubt because the Bible tells us he had seen the risen Lord. We don't, we're not for sure that when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, we're not for sure that, that Paul ever interacted with Jesus. We think he probably did. He, he must have known about him. He was a Pharisee. But we're not sure but we know that after Jesus had died and after Jesus resurrected, a few months later, Jesus appears to Paul. And this radical change takes place in Paul's life. At that point, he was going by his, his Hebrew name, Saul. And he was actually on the way to go and arrest Jewish people who had started following Christianity. 
And he was going to arrest them and have them, you know, thrown into prison. Uh, Some of them might have even been killed. And he's on the way to doing that. And on the way, this light appears to him. And And the light speaks to him. And it's Jesus. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you so upset at who I am, at my message? Why are, you, why are you arresting people who don't want to do anything more but live in peace and in love with each other and with you? Why are you trying to kill them? Boom. Blew up Paul's world. Cut at his very heart. Why are you raging against me? And what we know is in that moment, Paul was forever changed. All of you know that you, you can look at you know, things in your life that you've held on to, grudges, you know, negative thoughts about yourself or whatever, and, and they don't just magically disappear. Sometimes they just stay forever. Some of you are a little bit older than me and you've held on to them probably longer than I've been alive. Some people have to go to like therapy and things like that to at least be able to manage them. But Paul went from a guy that was so angry, so upset that he was marching he was, he was marching to other cities. It would take him days, if not weeks, to get there. You know how angry you have to be to stay that mad? And he went from that in a moment. And it's all gone. And now he can't do anything but love the way God loves crazy. That's why he says, without a doubt. And the reason he can tell these people that he's writing this letter to the same thing is because he knows, he knows many of them have experienced exactly what he's experienced. Went from living according to the ways of this world and instantly after meeting Jesus being changed. So when you look in verses 20 through 23, what we see is, is that it's, he's saying Jesus gives true life. True life to all who are united with him. What does true life mean? What does it mean when, when he said he's made them alive? Well, it's not just talking about physical. People get caught up in the the physical. They think about eternal life as just simply duration of eternal. And, And it is duration of eternal. But notice it's life in Christ. Those in Christ will be made alive. Those who belong to Christ. There's also a quality there. It's something that, as Christians, we only get tastes of, we get glimpses of. 
it's, it's something we can know now, but we don't know fully, and we look forward to the day when we can know fully. But, you know, the best way I can explain it is, is it, it's not some kind of magical, mystical thing. It's really not. But it's those moments in our lives when we are living and down to, to the DNA level, we are living not according to the ways of the world, not according being controlled by sin and death, not obsessed with power and my personal happiness and acquisition of things, and overwhelmingly loving, sacrificially, unconditionally, selflessly. I wish I could tell you that I have years like that. I don't. I wish I could actually tell you that I have months when I'm like that. And I really don't. I wish I could tell you I have weeks when I'm like that. I'm not. But I can tell you. I can tell you that it is my heart's desire to be like that in all situations. And that everyone who has been given true life in Jesus Christ, they, they know that. It's, it's what they live for. And then those moments come. And for some of you, those moments stretch and they do go for days and weeks and months and maybe years. And it's true life. You see, why did death need to be conquered? See, as long as death reigns, as long as death has power, we cannot really escape anything else. We as human beings, we live you know, for most of our lives, if we're somewhat normal, healthy human beings, trying to avoid death. And some people do it in different ways. Some people do it by trying to be healthy. Some people do it by trying to surround themselves with all the latest security gadgets. Some people try to, you know, be powerful We, we're obsessed with death and staying alive. And because of that, it, may, it turns our focus inward. Oh, we may turn it outward for a little while. We may have a group, maybe our family or someone else that we care about. But we really can't escape. We can't escape the selfishness. We can't escape the self-centeredness. We can't escape the obsession with, with our, our own things and our own lives. Death reigns. And I'm not going to tell you that it, you know, when we talk about things like sin and selfishness, you know, some people get turned off by that. You know, a lot of you know, even churches, they don't want to use those words anymore, but I'm, I'm sorry, we use them here. And some people think, like, that, that's, that's only really bad stuff. That's only really evil stuff. 
It is bad stuff. It is evil stuff. But it's a lot of other things that we've, we've kind of dressed up in our society. And we've kind of made them look acceptable, nice. We even will celebrate it. You know, I, I don't, I think the way of the bumper sticker is, some people still have them, but most people, you know, it was kind of a 70s thing, 80s thing. But you know, you, you would see some people's personal slogans on their bumper stickers. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? You know, it, the whole point of life is to, is to have as much fun as you can while you're here. Get as much stuff. Go as far as you can. We've made these things look very attractive. Jesus says, I've come to give you life. I've come to free you from that obsession with death. From the power that death holds over you. And that's what he kind of carries into verses 24 through 26. You know, at first we read the word, then comes the end, and we think like, oh, that's terrible. But that's not what he's talking. He's not talking about the end of all things. He's talking about the end of, of this stage, and the new stage is coming. He says, then comes the end. And then we start reading these words about kingdom and destroying and, you know, putting his enemies under his feet. And then we think like, but I just thought you just said this isn't about power. And it isn't about power. If we're going to understand what all of this means, we got to go back two days to Good Friday we have to go and see, how did Jesus conquer the power of sin and death? Well, he did it. He did it by dying on the cross for us as an expression of God's eternal, infinite, abundant, selfless love. He didn't do it by, through power the Bible tells us that Jesus, as the Son of God, at any moment, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have not even wasted his time with the angels and just wiped us all out with a thought. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes and he suffers and he dies us. Part of what he's doing on the cross is he's showing us another way. He's saying this is the world's way. What the world's way leads to is when you don't agree with someone, when you don't like someone, you know what you do? You persecute them, you hassle them, you mock them, you beat them, and then you kill them. And then you win. Whoever does that best, you get to be in charge. And Jesus, the Son of God, 
the most powerful being of all, doesn't do that. He shows us another way. He shows us a better way. He shows us the only way. And so when it talks about every rule and every authority, you know, being destroyed, what he's saying is that, is that this is what's going to happen when, when God's kingdom begins to spread and grow. More and more people are not going to live according to the ways of this world, obsessed with death, survival, power, acquisition. Instead, they're going to live and they're going to relate as people united by God's Spirit that we see in this incredible love that can only come from God. That's the point that he's making, is that this is the establishment of God's kingdom. This is what we can know. Everyone and everything will be indwelt and united by him in his love. But I want you to understand something. No one will be forced. If someone was forced to become a follower of Christ, that would go against everything that I just said. No one's forced. And the Bible tells us that sadly, some will resist doing things God's way. Someone, some will resist following, following Christ and they'll resist forever. But this kingdom, this kingdom where every, every thing and everyone is, is united, and there's a harmony there. And it's by God's spirit, God's perfect love. Now, part of the problem, that we, you know, whenever we talk about the word love is people think they know what it means, but they, they maybe they have some world definition, some human definition of love, but the Bible itself is our definition of love. It's why as Christians we cannot let go of the Bible it's why we need to understand it and study it and, and, and understand it correctly. Because it tells us what love looks like. There's a lot of people that say, okay, Christianity, you're about love. Okay, so we can just take love and then every other faith that's about love, then they're all the same. Not necessarily. The Bible doesn't allow for us to have a lawless love or a loveless law. The Bible tells us what it looks like. And so God's kingdom is, is established. It's far beyond just me. It's far beyond just you. It's something we can experience, again, in part here on this earth when, when, when the church is actually being the church, but so sadly the church falls so short of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. We find Jesus accomplishing 
conquering sin and death, conquering the sin nature in our lives. You hear some of this advice that comes out, which is terrible advice, but it's advice, unfortunately, we see in movies and books and songs, and and it's this advice that says, follow your heart. Well, this is, from a Christian, biblical standpoint, if you tell your child, follow your heart, what you're saying is, follow your fallen, sinful, selfish heart. You do that, and your life will be good. What Christianity tells us is that Jesus came to conquer the sin that's in our hearts. He came to heal the diseased hearts that we have. And then we can say, follow your heart, because we're not really following our heart. We're following his heart. This last point I want to just make here is, you know, some people are like, you know, pastor, you know that what you're saying, I I love that, and, and I think that's a great vision for the world. But then you guys keep bringing up that resurrection stuff. You keep bringing up that supernatural. You know, I just can't deal with that. We're, we're in a scientific world. I mean, how many times have you heard over the past year, trust the science? And you know what? If dealing with things like COVID and everything, trust the science. You want to deal with vaccinations? Trust the science. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're going to trust the science, you can't, you can't believe in it. You can't. And I'm... There's so much that we can trust the science on. But science doesn't disagree with the resurrection. Understand that. It doesn't disagree with the resurrection. Science just doesn't deal with things like resurrection. Why? Because for something to be scientifically valid, it has to be observable and it has to be repeatable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique. One time, one time only. You can't repeat a unique thing. And we can't observe it. But people say, why can't you leave it behind? Well, let me tell you why we can't leave it behind. And it's not just because it's true. Not just because I agree with Paul. In fact... Not because just of what I've experienced, but we can't leave it behind once we know the grip that sin has on us in our world. And that we know that it is in every fiber, that it is in our DNA. When you know the tragedy of sin, when you know that if something is not done to change it, The only alternatives are some kind of enforced conformity or anarchy. If you understand the horrors and the tragedy and the depth and the pervasiveness of sin, you realize we cannot help ourselves without God intervening 
without God doing something supernaturally to change our lives. You see, if you have an easy view of sin, if you just think we're misguided or, you know, we're, we're ignorant, we just need to be educated and, and enlightened a little bit, well, you don't need the resurrection. But when we look at evil and suffering in this world and we understand that that capacity for the evil and suffering that we see exists in each of us, we know we need a miracle. We need divine help. We don't need a superman. We need the God-man. Paul tells us that's what the resurrection does. It's why we celebrate it. It's what, it, what the resurrection reminds us of. When we have unity with the resurrected Lord through accepting what Jesus Christ did for us, no fear of sin, no fear of death. We live as we were meant to live. We have freedom to to be able to truly experience love and community with, with those around us and not simply from what we get out of it. We have unity with Christ. And we can say that simple confession that Paul writes in another letter that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead.